just realized I had my mic on while we were singing. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 27. Preaching on the whole chapter, but I won't read the whole chapter. We'll pick it up in verse 9 through verse 20. Acts 27, beginning in verse 9. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began admonishing them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than than by what Paul was saying. And because the harbor was not suitable for winter, and the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing northeast and southeast, and spend the winter there. And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Euroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running along the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let them down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned." I'll pray. God, we're just so grateful for all that we've been given in Christ. And we know, Lord, that we couldn't be more blessed than what we are. We also know, Lord, we live in a fallen world. And there are many things that happen we don't understand. And we face trials that are, that are way over our heads. We don't have the strength or the wisdom in and of ourselves. And our eyes are on you, God. We pray that as we look at your word that we would hear you again and, and um, that our hearts and spirits, God, would be drawn to you and that you would equip us, God, through your word, um, through your spirit, in the wisdom and strength that we need for living um, in this world at this time. In Christ's name, amen. You be seated. Well, in chapter 27 here, Paul is on his way to Rome, and it's just, you'd think it'd just be a simple trip, um, but not much is simple in Paul's life, and sometimes we can feel the same way. And um, what should have been just um, a few days' journey ends up taking several months. Uh, Part of that was because they started out at the wrong time of year, and they would have known when they started out, they're going to have to winter somewhere. That was a given. Because the Mediterranean Ocean is quite turbulent from the end of September all the way through the winter months into uh, March. And so they didn't sail during those times. They just, it was, um, they stay home and winter it out because it just was not wise. And and so nonetheless, they, they leave Caesarea and the first day out, they made good time. They traveled 70 miles on the first day. And so they decided, well, let's keep on it going. Maybe we'll continue to, to hit these 
calm winds. And so the next day, they had a lot of trouble in it, and they only went about 30 to 40 miles before they came to a place called Fairhaven. And they didn't want to stay there. The, the, the port was not good. It wasn't sheltered from the winds. And they, they know now they have, they're going to have to hunker down. And, um, and so Paul said to them what we read here in verse 9, Paul's going, we need to stay here, not, uh, we would say, press our luck. He didn't say that. But he said, it's time to just stay in place. But he was overruled. The um, centurion decided to listen to the pilot of the ship and the captain who was the owner. And then it says the majority, so maybe he even asked other people on board, decided to keep going. 276 people aboard this ship. And so the ship that they're now on, after they left Caesarea and traveled for the first day, they switched ships, and they're now on a wheat ship. Egypt provided most of the wheat for Rome, and so they really depended upon these ships, and they were large. Not only 276 people were able to be on board this ship, plus all the wheat, these ships were 180 feet long, 50 feet wide, and 44 feet from deck to hold. That's a pretty big boat. And this is no small storm, as Luke has said. Luke is traveling with Paul and also another friend from Macedonia named Aristarchus. That was probably very helpful for Paul, a lot less likely that he would be treated as your ordinary prisoner when he has friends traveling with him. So in likely um, inclined the centurion to show a little more favor to Paul. But he wasn't so inclined to listen to his advice when it came to when to stop and when to go. Because after all, Paul is not a sailor and he is a prisoner. But what we forget is that Paul's been on the seas a lot. From, the, from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 28, it's estimated that Paul had sailed 3,000 miles. There's probably some captains that hadn't sailed that many miles. So he has a little bit of experience. And we know from 1 Corinthians that he had spent, that three times he had been shipwrecked. And so he'd spent a little time in the water as well. And he knows what ships could do and couldn't do. And, and in his um, ex- expert opinion, but not um, trained, not licensed or anything like that, but he had some, some experience, he's going, we shouldn't go any further. But they said, 40 more miles. Just 40 more miles, and we can find a harbor that is good and safe, and we can spend the winter there. 40 miles. And then the winds looked calm, and so they decided, okay, let's go. They never made it. And they will, be, they will end up not knowing where they are, and they're going to spend two weeks at drift in a constant storm and end up blown off course by 350 miles. Pretty amazing. Now, I've never been... Um, on the seas during a storm. My experience of being on the seas has been limited to fishing near the coast um, and twice taking a cruise down into Mexico. And the waters were flat every time I've been on the water. But I remember taking our oldest son, Nathan, deep sea fishing for his 12th birthday out of um, um, Port Aransas. And it was one of these party fishing boats where there's about 100 fishermen and they're standing shoulder to shoulder along the decks. And um, we had um, seasickness medicine, which I forgot to bring along. We left it in the hotel. And waters were calm, and I thought, well, we'll make it. And so we, they no sooner had, had cast off, and I'm starting to feel queasy. 
I mean, I'm telling you, we're feet away from the dock. And I'm thinking, this isn't going to be a good day. It's a 12-hour day. And all we had eaten for breakfast, because we were in a hurry, we stopped at a convenience store and bought a bunch of honey buns. Did you know fish like honey buns? <laughs> I, was, I told myself I will not be the first person to throw up. And I wasn't. I was second. Um, I waited and waited until I saw this lady run for the rail. And I, and I was right behind her. And, uh, and so once we, we stopped sailing and, and, and all the fishing rods came out, I, 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 wasn't, I just had to put it down on the rail because I was leaning over the rail, chumming for fish the whole time. I, I did not know it was possible to throw up for 12 hours like that. And I didn't know the honey buns just kept growing inside you. <laughs> it was awful. I had to, my son Nathan was on my right, and some stranger was on my left, and the winds were blowing to the left. And, <laughs> and I just had to apologize to him over, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, I'm telling you, Nathan... I'm not exaggerating. He probably caught at least twice as many fish as anybody else on the boat because <laughs> I was chumming for him. It was, an, it was 12 hours in calm weather. Can you imagine two weeks in the stormiest of conditions? You never see the sun, the moon, or the stars. It is dark. It is wet. It is turbulent. And everybody is so has so given up that there's no hope left. The last verse we read, verse 20. On, and it says, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. This is a terrible circumstance. We can't even imagine. Unless you've maybe been out on the ocean and during a storm like that, there was no hope. Middle of the ocean, two-week storm, blown hundreds of miles off course, no idea where they are, and it's so bad just to try and keep afloat, they're jettisoning everything they can, even the ship's tackle. It's all going overboard. They kept some of the wheat down in the hold, probably to help us ballast, because the ship has got to be balanced. And you can't just throw everything overboard. You have to keep some weight down at the bottom. And so they'd, they saved what they could just to keep the boat, again, upright and afloat. But it's terrible circumstances. And it's interesting to me, there's, there's, there's some lessons here. Again, I've just been amazed as we've gone through Acts how timely each of these chapters, each of these sections have been. But start going back here to verse 9 and 10, where um, it had, the troubles haven't started yet. And it says, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And again, that was based upon his experience on the seas. And I appreciate that Paul didn't say, God told me this, because God didn't tell him that. And he was right about the loss of the ship. He was not right about the loss of life. And so you can see where many times, because as a, as a Christian, and we do believe that God speaks to us, and God prompts us, and God gives wisdom, Sometimes we can go too far when we're so convinced that what, what we see is right and correct and other people are wrong, we can go maybe a step too far, which is a big step, and say, the Lord has told me when God hasn't told us. 
It's our common sense speaking. But it's not God speaking. Not that the common sense is a bad thing, but don't over-spiritualize. And we do that way too much. I've told you the story, a friend of mine said, a ministry down in Costa Rica, I believe it was Costa Rica, Central America at least, they believed that God told them to build a boat in order to deliver Bibles up some river. And so they acted on it. They told everybody, God told us to build this boat. And they built the boat. Problem was, they didn't measure the river before they built the boat. And they built a boat too big for the river. Boat couldn't turn around on the river. It has to sail up and then go in reverse on the way back, I guess. They, just, they never could use the boat. But they were so insistent, God told us. And I have no doubt that the Lord maybe wanted them to build a boat. But they jettisoned, not the cargo, but their common sense when it came to building the boat. We need to be very careful not to overstate and insert God's name into things where God has not spoken. But one of the most amazing things that everybody recognizes about this passage of Scripture is how Paul went from just being a prisoner, passenger, to being the leader on this boat. And everybody's looking to Paul and listening to Paul. How does that happen? He didn't strive to be the leader. He tried to be of help. And by the time the chapter's over, he's the leader. So I want to make just a few observations here, some lessons that we can draw from this passage. And the first one, clearly to me, is here in verse 9. They didn't listen to him. So it says, verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain or the owner of the ship than by what Paul said. And now the problems start. One of the hardest things in life is to live with problems that other people have created for us, right? Other people make the decisions, and our lives will never be the same. I hate it when I see that. You hear about grandparents who ought to be raising, who ought to be acting as grandparents and not as parents. But many times, but because of the choices of their children, the children are not in the picture to parent their own children. Why it's one of the wonderful things to see six sets of parents parenting their children, not grandparents, because the children are missing. But that happens. And so many other situations that we could look to and say, this isn't right. This should never have happened. We're, this is not what God intended. We may be able to say that about our recent election. And then we all live with the problems that are being created from circumstances that should never have happened. So what do you do? None of this would have happened if the centurion, the pilot, and the captain had listened. When life is less than ideal because of other people's choices, and we have no hope to escape, of escaping the circumstances that they have created, what do you do? Well, what Paul did, what we all have to do, is live in those circumstances. And I put the emphasis on live. Because we can stop living. And that's not right. But in those circumstances, to continue to live. Don't stop living. God is still in control. To live in Christ and from Christ. In the midst of circumstances that we know, we wake up every day and say, this isn't right. 
Amen. It's not right. Shouldn't be that way. But you've got to keep living. God's glory and our conformity to Christ is God's goal. Clearly, God allows a lot to happen in this world that should never have happened. Because those things are not, in themselves, do not have the power to thwart God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. In fact, they could be the tools and the means. And that being those two things, for God to receive the glory and for you and I as the people of God to be brought into greater conformity to Christ. God's goal is not a life without trials. It is that we would be brought into conformity to him and he would be glorified. Well, that's the first thing. When we're in circumstances, caught up in circumstances that we can't escape and are not of our doing, don't stop living. Living in Christ and from Christ. But the second thing that goes with that is love those people who cause those circumstances anyway. Paul loved that centurion, I believe, and the captain and the pilot and all the other 270 plus people on that boat. He was very concerned for their welfare. He didn't grouse about what was going on. He didn't, um, didn't nag on them. He loved them, and he sought to serve them. And he prayed for them, and he exhorted them, and encouraged them, counseled them. In the midst of circumstances that didn't have to be, kept living and kept loving the very people who caused those circumstances. The second thing is, we see in this passage, as we know throughout life, that leading without position or authority, but you can still, you don't have any position, you don't have any authority, but you can lead, nonetheless, in giving direction and hope. I like to watch war me, uh, movies and, and westerns and that kind of thing, because usually something's being blown up. Um, but isn't it interesting to watch some of these movies that have been made where the most unlikely people who have not necessarily been trained as officers step up and begin leading because the person in the official leadership role is over his head and somebody else will rise to the top. These men are over their head. This is a storm that they cannot control. They don't know what to do. They're at their wit's end, and they have given up hope. And I wonder if, if even Paul wasn't included in that, where it says in verse 20, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Yes, I know God said to Paul, you're going to be in Rome, and God's going to speak to him again on this boat in the midst of the storm and say, you're going to be in Rome. But before that angel spoke while on the boat, I think all hope of our being saved included Paul. Now, I don't want to say that we can't trust God, and when God says you're going to be in Rome, you're going to be in Rome. I understand it. But I also understand that the sovereignty of God, as certain as it is, is not as easy for us to understand sometimes as we think. And I read Hebrews chapter 11, for example, and all of those individuals in Hebrews 11 were trusting in the sovereignty of God. 
God spoke to every one of them, and they knew exactly what God said. But at the end of the chapter, it says none of them received what was promised before they died. What do you do with that? Not a one of them received what was promised before they died. But they died believing. They had to come up to a place that says, you know, I don't understand how God can promise me something and it doesn't happen. Except maybe it's going to happen after this life. I don't know. I have to conclude that's where they came to because ultimately the promise was fulfilled, will be fulfilled, but not during their lifetime. And even though God had promised and God is sovereign and he does what he's going to say he's going to do, sometimes we don't see it happen during our lifetime. And that can cause a real crisis of faith. I think that Abraham... When God said, this is the son that I have chosen, I think God believed it. Abraham believed God. No question about it. And then God said, sacrifice him. That had to be hard. Had to be unbelievably hard. How do I reconcile the promise of God, the sovereignty of God, with now God says he's going to die? That's a crisis. Abraham was obedient to sacrifice his son and would have if God had not intervened and said, spare your son. And it looks for all practical purposes that after 14 days of a, st- a storm that won't stop and it is, it, it, there's no hope of surviving, that maybe what God said about going to Rome, I should change my mind on how I should interpret that. I don't know. But I would say that even Paul has given up hope and that God needed to speak to him again to strengthen and encourage him that he will go to Rome. So when it comes to leadership and not being in leadership, but knowing that God, people need direction and people need hope, who does God use? Who does God raise up? And I would say we have to first realize that God raises up leaders. If all gave up hope, and the all includes Paul, Paul was not sitting in the hold of that ship going, maybe I can do something here. There was nothing he or anyone else could do. And yet God speaks to Paul and raises him up. Now, none of us are surprised that God raised up Paul, because he's Paul, after all. I'm a poet and didn't know it. And for good reason, God raised him up. It's bigger than Paul. It had to do with the gospel. It had to do with the reputation of, of the gospel message and of the church. That God used Paul to bring about deliverance for these people. But God raises up the leaders. And I don't think that there was anything left in Paul to be able to lead at this point. God raised up Paul. A man who, like all the others, is without hope. And he couldn't just find the hope. God had to do something in Paul. There's not always predicting who God will raise up or when or where. Paul didn't have any position on that boat or authority. 
And he didn't seek it, and he didn't need it in order to lead. He went from being a prisoner expected to follow the commands of others to being the one that everyone else was looking to for leadership. God did that. God raises up those who, number one, know God. And they walk with him in faith and obedience. And because they know God, they're more likely to keep their heads and not panic. But he also raises up those who know God and they know a thing or two, as the insurance company says on TV. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Paul knew a thing or two because he'd seen a thing or two. So yes, God raised him up because he knows God, but he's also a man who has some knowledge and some expertise in what's happening. God is the source of all knowledge. Daniel and his friends found that out. Adam and Eve would have found that out if they had not eaten of the tree because God always intended that he be the source of all knowledge. And so they never needed to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They could have just gone to God for the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't need to go to a tree. God is the source of all knowledge. But that, and I know I've seen so many times in my life where I just didn't know what to do because I had no expertise in the area where the decision had to be made. And God has provided wisdom. Either directly, just by making me see something that I wasn't seeing before, or through the counsel of others, but God has given the knowledge. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to become people who know things. Speaking of this natural, secular world, it's okay to go to university, to get a degree in engineering or in medicine, or to learn a trade, be able to work on a car, build a house. For all the history of the church, and even all the history of Israel, it's been recognized that you need to know God, and you need to know things. And so we should be people who are not afraid of education, afraid of learning things, I was encouraged um, recently, one of our guest speakers asked um, the students, I think it was the guys in the guys meeting, how many of you have a trade where you could go to work and get a job? And quite a number of the hands went up in the room, and I was encouraged by that. It's more likely that God's going to raise up people in positions of leadership when they both know God and know things. But leadership is ultimately not about position or authority because authority comes from God. Authority comes from when God's hand is on a man's life. And that's all the authority ultimately he will need. You can look at John the Baptist, of course Jesus, the two witnesses of Revelation. None of them had any position or authority recognized by man whatsoever, but they had great authority because of the hand of God on their lives. They commanded attention. There was power in their words. And yet we all have also have to recognize that John the Baptist and Jesus and the two witnesses are all martyred, killed. God, authority was on their lives, but that doesn't mean that they're going to live without trial and even without being murdered. Leadership is ultimately about character, integrity, purity of heart, inner strength, wisdom, prudence, clarity of thought, courage, conviction, 
calmness and steadfastness. But those are things God has to do as we seek to walk with God and know God. Leadership is both spiritual, is both in spiritual things and concerning secular things. Paul prayed in front of the men and he spoke openly about his faith, clearly spiritual things. But he also encouraged them to eat and not let the sailors leave the boat or they would die. He was both heavenly minded and he was earthly good. We are going to need, in all likelihood, in the days ahead, in the storm that could be coming, men who will step up. We will need men that God raises up who have prepared themselves to seek God and to live honestly and forthrightly in this world. So after they've all given up hope, going back to the text, it says, verse 22, and yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. They've all given up hope. But Paul says, I encourage you, keep up your courage. For there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. That's not what he said starting out, but now God's spoken to him. For this very night, an angel of the Lord, to, the angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. So he'd been afraid. It's understandable. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. So then Paul says, Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Wow. See, he's talking, there's only two other believers on this boat out of 276 men. But he's talking to all of them, and he has a captive audience, men without hope. And he's saying, you can have hope. God, whom I serve, has spoken to me by an angel, and he said, we're all going to live. We must run aground on a certain island. But they don't all believe him. At least the sailors don't. But the 14th, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther, they, found, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. So they're getting closer to shore. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. I'm sure they did. And as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, which makes no sense, and I'm not even a sailor. I can see putting anchors out the back, but why would you put anchors in the front? And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. See, again, you see this tension here. God said everybody's going to live, right? And Paul's saying, we're going to die if those sailors get off the boat. That's why I say, yes, we can be absolutely certain that God is sovereign and God is in control. But we shouldn't be just too simplistic. Because I'm convinced the more I look at God's word and look at life, we may not understand God's sovereignty like we think we do. It's not sometimes all that simple. God spoke. You're not going to die. And Paul's saying, if those men get off the boat, we're going to die. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. 
And until day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, probably because they've been throwing up the whole time. Right? And it wasn't honey buns. And they're just, they, they, they can't eat. They are so seasick. These experienced sailors and all the others, they can't even eat. And Paul's saying, you need to eat. Practical matters. God has spoke to me. You can be encouraged. I have faith in God. Believe God. But they're going to have to swim for shore. And they need strength. And they need to eat. Practical matters that he's giving counsel on as well as the spiritual. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke and he began to eat. Wonderful thing to do. Just praying convicts me that I should always be willing to pray in the presence of all when I sit down in a restaurant with Christians and even when I sit down in a restaurant with unbelievers. Pray in the presence of all. And all of them were encouraged. And they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. So they're trying to drive it into the bay as hard as they could. But they hit a reef before they came into the bay, probably literally a sandbar. And now the ship is stuck into the sandbar, and the waves are crashing against the back of the ship, and the ship begins to break apart. In verse 42... The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. God said, none of you will die. And now they're all going to die. The prisoners will. That none of them should swim away and escape. The penalty for losing a prisoner was death. And the soldier said, we'd rather kill the prisoner than be killed. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to the land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things within the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. So a couple more lessons. Number one, as I said, living with problems caused by others. Continue to live and love those people anyway. Learning to lead without authority or position, but giving direction and hope. Trusting God to raise us up at the time when people need hope. Number three, we can be certain of God's will, but we should never presume upon his grace. Paul had every reason to be confident before they ever set sail, because God said, you're going to stand and witness of me before Caesar in Rome. But isn't it interesting, as somebody's observed, that the most cautious man on this boat was the, most, the one who had the most reason to be confident, and that was Paul. And the people who had the least reason to be confident because they're not going to go to heaven if they die are the ones who are the least cautious. Nothing's changed, has it? There is a, a Christian should not be a careless person. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And Proverbs says, 
prudence dwells with wisdom. We ought to be prudent people, wise people, not careless people. We know what God has said. We know that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. We know that God works all things together for good. But that doesn't mean we should just be flippant and careless in how we live our lives. And the irony is, is that we see unbelievers all around us that are living as though there is no tomorrow with no fear of God. And they're the ones who ought to be the most cautious and circumspect about this life. Spiritual certainty shouldn't negate common sense. Don't sail in the winter. Eat when strength is needed. The expertise of sailors is needed. All these things were common sense mixed into this passage alongside spiritual certainty. Paul knew that God said that they would stand be, he would stand before Caesar, yet he was concerned that all that others would lose their lives. Don't presume on God's grace. Don't put God to the test, as Jesus quoted when he was being tempted by the devil. Another interesting thing here, and I don't want to make too much of it, but it's clearly a principle that we see that runs all through Scripture. And that is that God uses Christians to preserve the physical life of unbelievers. He truly does. We are the salt and light of this world. And salt is for preservation. Sometimes unbelievers think it's just for making the wound more painful, rubbing salt in the wound. That's not our role. But salt is to preserve and to try and slow down the decay process. And our mere presence on this planet, God is accomplishing that. We see this all through Scripture. We saw that God was unwilling to destroy this world as long as Noah didn't have a boat to get into. And this world was absolutely safe from the, from the judgment of God until the ark was finished and Noah and his family were in it. And until that time, nothing was going to happen to this world because God was committed to preserving Noah and his family. So every, by extension, everyone else's life was safe as long as Noah and his family were here. We see the same thing with Lot and his family. As long as they were in those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, nothing was going to happen to those cities. It was only after they had been let out by the hand that God would destroy those cities. And I believe it's the same principle we see with the rapture of the church. doesn't mean that there won't be times of great tribulation that come upon this world. But the great tribulation will not happen as long as the church is here. We are keeping this world safe by virtue of just our simple presence. The world doesn't understand that. They're going to accuse the church of being its problem. They're going to try and silence us, try to marginalize us. We understand that. It's always been that way. But they don't understand. We are not their problem. In fact, being the salt of the world, we are the reason that they continue to exist. I don't think I'm overstating that, that God is preserving this world and he is using the presence of his people to keep that preservation going. We see that Christianity is not a fair weather religion. <laughs> Speaking of the bad weather they were going through, our faith is good during the storm. Though we often don't know it until we go through the storm. 
And sometimes then we jettison Christ. But Christ is good in the storms of life. We sing about that all the time. I love those songs. When things are good and things are bad, we know that Christ is sufficient. And we need to act like it. We don't pray for storms. We pray that we wouldn't have to go through storms. And that's, that's fine. I think it's foolishness to pray for trials. But it's in the trials that the testing of the faith takes place and what we truly believe in is revealed. And finally, we see that some storms last longer than others. A two-week storm at sea is a very, very long time. It's miraculous that boat didn't sink on the first day. But two weeks later, God was keeping them afloat. What was he doing during that two weeks? When we saw in that one verse, they had all abandoned their hope. I think that's what God was after. I love um, squeezing my grandkids. And um, little Jack and Scarlett aren't old enough for me to do this to them yet. But the older ones, and they're all boys, and I'll, and I'll just bear hug them, especially if I hadn't seen them in a while, and I'll just squeeze them. And they go, and then I, and I go, I'm squeezing the stuffings out of you. And I'm looking at their ears, and I go, it's not coming out yet. And, I, and, they, and I'll squeeze them again. And I go, are all the stuffings out of you? And they always go, yes, after one squeeze. Yes, the stuffings are. No, they're not. And I'll squeeze them some more. And one of my grandsons, no matter how many times I squeeze him, he goes, the stuffings aren't out yet, Pop. And so I'll squeeze him some more. I think God squeezes the stuffings out of us. And the stuffings he's trying to get out are all the false hopes. We're stuffed full of false hopes. And God uses all kinds of trials in our life to purify our hearts to where the only thing we hope in is him. And it's a merciful act of God. These people, you know, they're never more ripe to hear what Paul had to say than when they had given up all he has squeezed all the false stuffings out of them. And that's when Paul's leadership emerges as well. And it's a leadership without ambition, self, selfish ambition. It is selfless, and it is supernatural. Because even with Paul, there is no hope left other than God. We don't like being there, do we? But it's a good place to be. Because that's when God can act. And only God gets the credit. When we go through these storms of life, these trials, when there is nothing we can do. There is nobody we can call upon, nobody we can ask for help. There is no resource coming. There is zero. It's not a bad place to be. We've had all the false hopes squeezed out of us. And now God can deliver. So once again, for me at least, a very timely passage of Scripture. We don't know what storms are coming, but we know they're coming. And we know that God wants to use us in this world to be those who give direction and hope when others, including ourselves, have lost all hope other than in Jesus Christ. And God will raise us up inspiring us supernaturally 
to be those who are giving hope and encouragement and strength to others when we don't even have it in ourselves. We're no different than everybody else. But God then is in a position, because there's nothing left but Jesus, to use us to encourage and strengthen those around us, especially in this fallen world where there are so many that don't know him and need to. I'll close us in prayer. Lord, I thank you again that you are our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. It's not in health, in politicians, Lord. It's not in money. It's not in education. It's not in what we can do, God. Our only true certain hope is Jesus. And we will always have hope because he is our rock and he is trustworthy. We don't understand, God, how things play out the way they do, how the things that we've heard you say through your word sometimes don't seem to be being fulfilled. But we trust you nonetheless. We give you, God, our uncertainties, our unknowns, the bewilderments, Lord, of our hearts and minds, because we're often bewildered. We just have to bring it before you and come to you and fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. I thank you, God, for the, for the hope that, that we have and that these, these babies represented that, represent that we dedicated this morning. And God, we want them to know Jesus as their hope. We pray that you would truly give great wisdom to these parents to point their kids to Jesus. And we do as a fellowship, God, want to be committed to praying for each of them, not just the babies, Lord, but all of the children that are here. And there are a bunch, the high school kids, junior high, elementary, the college age, God, I pray you'd prompt our hearts to pray for them, encourage them, and to be of value in their lives for your purposes. We thank you, Jesus, that you are sufficient for this life. I pray that when we are without hope, that we would know your strengthening ministry within us to trust in you, and that we would be used, God, to encourage others to come to you and trust. In Christ's name, amen.